Welcome to the IBM Podcast Network. I had a bad dream the other day. I dreamed I died and went to hell. A very large demon with orange hair and a 56-inch chest let me in and said, "Go forth and suffer." I went forth and as soon as I entered hell, I fell into a pothole. It was full of dirty water. I somehow clambered out and walked over to a roadside restaurant. It was a hot day. There was no electricity there. I was sweating like a pig. I asked the waiter for some water. He said there was no water in the taps. I got up to go. I walked out and I fell into a pothole again. As I clambered out, the large demon with orange hair and a 56-inch chest came and stood in front of me. I asked him, "What's going on, man? What kind of hell is this?" Where is the eternal fire? Where are the torture instruments? What kind of hell is this? He laughed and replied, "This is hell 2.0. It is a new improved version. We based it on Indian urban governance." Muhahahahahaha. Muhahahahahaha. Welcome to the seen and the unseen. Our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen. In today's episode, I will explore why urban governance in India's cities is so abysmal. My guest for today is Shruti Rajgopalan, an economist and lawyer who teaches economics in Purchase College in New York. Welcome to the show, Shruti. Hi, Amit. Thanks for having me. Shruti, uh, you were born and brought up in Delhi. Yes. and you come to bombay very often and now of course you live in new york yes um so every time you visit india as you are now thankfully you're in uh, mumbai right now at my studio what is your impression of delhi and mumbai how have these cities changed over the years um so one the cities have really grown uh, both delhi and mumbai are now the greater delhi area and the greater mumbai area so they've sort of spread both in a geographical area and size and also in terms of how many people live there uh the other thing is i find that people are actually richer so uh people in delhi per capita seem to have more cars uh more goods and services so there are some things where there's a very clear marked improvement but if you ask about the city infrastructure uh even though it seems that there is a lot of construction and the government always seems to be building some metro or monorail or flyover or something like that the infrastructure hasn't kept up with the demand for that infrastructure it's always lagging behind and even before a road is built it is congested so it's clearly not built keeping in mind excess capacity for how the city will look 3 you know 3 years from now 30 years from now it's always reactive you're chasing the demand so exactly uh so that's one part of it while i say that the infrastructure there's some work going on and it's improved and it hasn't kept up i actually find a lot of other services much worse i feel like garbage collection is worse than it used to be even though delhi has built so many new roads and i'm guessing it's must be similar for bombay they just seem to forget to build things like sidewalks and storm water drains or pedestrian walkways uh there's nowhere for a regular person to walk or a, for a bus to stop and for regular folks to get on so all the activity just spills on to the streets and causes more congestion so there clearly seems to be some kind of a service delivery problem either because the city governors or those responsible don't really understand what people need um or because there's no reason to provide it and it's just easier to build a flyover 
then to build public facilities and toilets and you know things like that and our urban governance has been shoddy for so long that we almost take it for granted like just before we started recording josh our producer was talking about how someone asked him the other day that you know the trains in bombay have no doors really and that's just something we take for granted we don't think twice about it but the fact is around nine people die every day on bombay's locals and it's just a throwaway statistic as if it you know doesn't matter at all and and all through these years urban governance has never really improved even though india's focus should really be on the cities i mean one third of india already lives in cities um which is a number which is going to grow by 2050 as you pointed out in your recent paper 70% of the world will live in cities which is natural because people gravitate to cities from poorer areas because there are greater economic networks therefore more opportunities more productivity a better life you know people might idealize the rural life but very seldom do people travel in the other direction it's always migration to cities so you you would imagine with so much of an inward movement into cities that there is also pressure from the people uh, to the government to deliver good urban governance what are the reasons it is not happening so let me unpack the big questions into into a few smaller bits so first you're absolutely right the cities is where the future is it's already happening now we are in the midst of the greatest migration in human history except that that greatest migration is happening within borders of nations so it's already started and it's accelerated in china and it's happening in india so by 2030 600 million people uh in india will live in cities right now the number is just a little over 350 million so either the number of cities need to double or our cities need to grow twice in size to accommodate these people and everything that they have to offer the second part of it as you rightly pointed out is that these cities are also going to be the drivers of economic growth and productivity so i've always held the belief that people are not poor it's just people are trapped in low productivity and poor areas the exact same worker who is trapped in a low productivity area in the village comes to the city finds work and his wages immediately double or triple or quadruple right and that's the reason to come to cities so the great migration in total is an excellent thing for india and for indians to get out of this sort of poverty trap now having said that this also puts a lot of stress on urban governance and people who are migrating may not be it may not be their top priority to demand urban governance they sort of just showed up in a city like mumbai and they're just trying to make a living if making a living involves taking a train which is almost a death wish to get to work and get back that's what they do because that's what they need to do to get to work on time right they have fewer choices people who are already settled and entrenched in cities such as you've been living in bombay for a long time we become apathetic to yes. this so technically you are the people who are more likely to demand better governance and some of that does happen uh as you said a lot of apathy and you just get used to it and more importantly all of us have found our own jugards right so if the garbage collection provided by the state doesn't work very well the resident society or association figures out a way to have some kind of garbage association and collects a small fee for it i see this happening or in all sorts of suburbs all over the place so between these two things because people do have to get on with their life right everything can't be a big protest over everyday issues i think that's sort of the trap that's going on in terms of the demand side of things 
the other part of it is there is something uh, a little messed up going on structurally in terms of how we have set up urban local bodies or municipalities which are actually supposed to be responsible for city governance we have created these urban local bodies through a constitutional amendment in the mid 90s having said that we democratized it we created an entire layer of elected officials and also staffed bureaucrats to help those officials but we gave them no uh, authority and we gave them no revenue raising ability which basically means we have an entire new layer of government which is essentially toothless and this is the most important layer of government in my mind when it comes to delivering services to people especially if most of the people in the country are eventually going to live in cities so i think that that structural problem that we have in the indian federal system is what needs to be addressed uh because even though delhi's problems might be storm water drains and mumbai's problems might be roads and surat's might be garbage collection or something else it's actually the same problem structurally it's it's the governance delivery mechanism which is broken so let me go through that again now typically people who believe in governance would say local government is a great thing especially if there's democracy because your leaders are accountable to you you elect your local corporators councillors whoever and you hold them accountable if they don't deliver if they don't collect the garbage if they don't clear up the potholes outside then you vote them out but where you are saying the system is broken is that yes you vote them in and out but they are powerless because they can't a they don't raise their own funds and b often they don't have the power to actually effect the kind of change which you elect them to do uh so how does the system work then okay so india as a federal country or uh, when we used to be young and we had these civics textbooks it used to have this throwaway line india is a federal nation with a unitary bias uh which i never knew what it meant until i i grew older and uh now i realize it means that india is not federal <laughs> uh, it just has a lot of states mm. but the way the indian federation was set up was there was a far greater level of centralization than say many other federal countries like the united states now the way the indian federation was set up was while you have state elections and local elections and so on it is not fiscally federal right uh this means that there was a body that was created when the constitution was adopted called the finance commission the revenue that was collected all over the country would be centralized and then the finance commission would determine how much of that revenue needs to go back to which state and which area this basically means that the link between where the revenue is collected and where the expenditure is made is broken which is normally not the case with local government now note that when the indian constitution was adopted there was no such thing as an urban local government constitutionally there was no provision for local governments the simple assumption was state governments will take care of it like why wouldn't they and every state is different some of them are more rural some of them are more urban Each so the assumption was the states would have these uh, local arms as a voter your voice really is to elect uh, your chief minister exactly. and his cabinet then uh, through the decades they figured out that this kind of centralization is really hurting local governance most importantly the villages so there was a huge push to have local level institutions this was a fairly revolutionary move at the time and even today so this happened through the 73rd amendment which set up panchayati raj institutions in rural areas and the 74th amendment which set up ulbs or urban local bodies in urban areas 
Now, what the 73rd and the 74th Amendment did, if you actually look at the text of these amendments, it sets up in detail what that government structure would look like, right? How will these people be elected? How many of those seats will be reserved versus general seats? Uh, how many of the different categories you will have? How many women? Once you elect them, there is a long list of responsibilities. So the way you have the seventh schedule, which gives you the union, state and concurrent list, you know, which determines what the central government and the state governments can legislate upon. There was something introduced called the 12th schedule, which had details of all the areas such as, you know, town planning, garbage collection, all the things that local governments must take care of. So all this was very clearly drafted and specified. Having said that, there was one crucial problem with the 73rd and the 74th Amendment. The way you have a central finance commission which splits the money between the central government and various states, they enabled an entire new set of finance commissions called the state finance commission. So Maharashtra will have one, Gujarat will have one. And these finance commissions only have recommending power. They don't have any authority to execute their recommendations. So they recommend to the state legislature how much of the revenue will be split between the state government and the local governments. In this case, they are Panchayati Raj institutions and urban local bodies. Now, despite repeated recommendations by various state finance commissions, the amount or the percentage of the revenue which is actually devolved to the lowest level of government is very small. That's one. The second issue is it's extremely arbitrary and not consistent. So some of the governments actually devolve a fair bit Sometimes they'll do it as a one-time thing because there was a push from the central government or something like that. Uh, and then the next year, it won't happen or it stops. So if you just uh, think about the way fiscal uh, theory works, you can raise your own money, you know, by actually collecting taxes. You can raise it through bonds or by the state issuing bonds and going into debt. Or you can get it through intergovernmental transfer, which is... The you know what the finance commission does. It gives money from the center to the right. states. It transfers money between states. State finance commissions give money from state to local government. The theory suggests, and this is played out empirically everywhere, that the less you rely on intergovernmental transfers, the better it is. Simply because intergovernmental transfers break the link between the citizen and the people who are governing those citizens. Right. So let me give you an example. Now, let's say that the residents of Khar, where we are recording this, actually want sidewalks to be built and want better garbage collection. Those are their top two demands. And you have some kind of a municipal authority and someone from Khar is a representative there. Now, he's elected by these people. He will take all the demands to the powers that be. Now, since he doesn't control his own purse strings and he has no revenue-raising authority, he finally needs to please some bureaucrat in the government of Maharashtra to allot those funds. So now, let's say the bureaucrat wants a flyover named after Ambedkar, okay? And that's his preference. Remember, initially we started out with the citizen's preference was garbage collection and building of sidewalks. Now, whose preference should he cater to? The, the representative from Khar. The people who voted for him want one thing. 
and the person who's going to give him the money wants something completely different so one is he has all this responsibility and he can be removed in the next election so on but he doesn't have much power he needs to finally bow down before someone else and those and that someone else is not the voters or the taxpayers second is all these fine residents of car are actually paying taxes and they think that their taxes should fetch them all these local services but their taxes actually go towards building the ambedkar flyover in malad instead of car why because the bureaucrat or the legislator in maharashtra wanted an ambedkar flyover in malad so that's exactly what ends up happening you have extremely disgruntled voters you have extremely disgruntled taxpayers all that money is being spent and yet the actual connection between our demand for a specific service and the supply of that specific service is broken so let me unpack it for a moment from the perspective of incentives ideally if you had an accountable local government you would have a corporator who has a budget he needs to do whatever and his incentives are to please the people who elected him and to give them what they want which in this case is a sidewalk and uh, the garbage collection however that is not his incentive because he doesn't hold the purse strings his incentive is to please the bureaucrat or the legislator the bureaucrat's incentives will be something different entirely it might be to build a flyover in malad where he gets kickbacks from the contractor yeah. and so on and so forth all the incentives are messed up simply because of uh because the fiscal purse strings are not where they should be absolutely i think it's a very very important principle of governance which we never really appreciated much in india and it seems to be completely lost now that there needs to be democratic accountability and also fiscal accountability india is a very very um uh, staunchly democratic country at every level of governance like you actually see people showing up to elect representatives at local elections and panchayati raj elections so we are very democratically inclined indians like to vote they like to protest they like to register their voice and we do have an involved citizenry you should exactly. look at the people in my society wow. yes mm. so you have a very involved citizenry having said that given that it's not a fiscally devolved state or we seem to have lost the concept of fiscal accountability and all the fiscal governance is completely centralized in new delhi or in the state capital of every state and it's not being further devolved to the people the link between the voice which represents it democratically in the voting booth and the actual payment that accompanies it in local taxes is completely broken so that is one very big part of the problem the other very big part of the problem is this kind of heavy reliance on intergovernmental transfers so what happens right now i see a lot of disgruntled people in mumbai whose taxes are going to be spent on loan waivers in up right this is a typical intergovernmental transfer problem so the money that is raised in mumbai that even within the current system should technically go to the coffers of maharashtra government and then come back to the people of maharashtra even if not just mumbai now actually goes away centrally to a different pool and then goes to other states which don't have the same revenue raising capacity as mumbai because they're not as productive in terms of you know urban areas as mumbai is and it goes to loan waivers in uttar pradesh So this is the other reason for being disgruntled. We have people paying taxes, and we have people registering their voices. So you could say no, no wonder people want to evade taxes and don't take the responsibility seriously because they're like, look, I'm not getting bang for my buck. Exactly. So that's the unintended consequence of this. It's on the face of it, it looks like we live in a regular democracy and a regular federal nation, and there's local governance. But actually, when you unpack the structure of it, 
we do live in a democracy but we have no federalism because all federalism needs to be backed by fiscal federalism so if you give the power and the responsibility to various layers of government and finally you don't devolve the revenue raising capacity that kind of federalism is absolutely I mean, meaningless essential the essential thing here is that the power and the responsibility should be with the same person and here you have the local corporator you elect having the responsibility but the power being with someone else who is not accountable in any way so, so let me just tweak what you said a little mm. bit in a country that's both democratic and fiscally federal the power is always with the people mm. it's not with the corporator or the legislator exactly. right so they have the power to either vote you out or to protest when taxes are raised to claim loan waivers somewhere else right so if you keep raising taxes without giving the residents of khar their garbage disposal and storm water drains and sidewalk then they'll stop voting for you and they'll protest any kind of tax increase and that is what is broken in india so just to put this in perspective uh since you asked about governance my parents moved uh, to noida to a beautiful condo association that condo association has incredible politics which is fascinating for me to watch every decision on the maintenance of the generator should be put a new water filtering unit should be has speed breakers in front of every individual building within the larger complex because you know there are kids that come back from school and you don't want cars driving fast every decision is vigorously debated with a lot of you know high emotion when you go to the association meetings and you think about it and you're like why isn't all this emotion seen anywhere else it's because they know that their voice will be heard and they pay a maintenance fees and they want to get bang for their buck and whoever is the local elected representative is their neighbor he'll have no choice but to hear them and to execute the wishes of the larger group of people this energy would be wasted anywhere else except within the exactly so now if i think about it there are about i believe uh 3000 flats and you know a little over 10000 residents in that particular condo association and it has a lot of small and big governance problems i mean it, it maintains its own parks it has its own roads it has its own parking garage it has its own power backup unit so it's not really running a city but it's like running a tiny neighborhood a microcosm of a it. microcosm of a city and so the problems are the same at a smaller scale and because it is more local and the people who are voting are also paying maintenance fee for the condo association which is a sort of tax equivalent in this case they are able to demand their service delivery and when i see that in action so my recommendation is not that we should move everything to condo associations that's not where i'm going with this my uh, the insight i would take from this example is simply that you need to make both the voice and the tax paying or the revenue raising ability to be aligned in purpose and between the same groups of people for the whole system to work right so my next obvious follow up question then is that what are the changes we need to see which i presume are just uh, you know getting the fiscal reins into the hands of whoever you elect locally and how likely are they to happen what are the interest groups against that and you know what is the process okay so you know structurally the system that we have in india is such that no one is mandating that you need to devolve more revenue downstream having said that there is nothing in the system that prevents any government from doing so it is possible tomorrow for the 
parliament to say that the finance commission is going to only leave 10% to the center and 90% to the states there's nothing that stops them from legislating on that similarly there's nothing that stops the states from legislating that we will have 30% with the state government and 70% with the local government so it's a question of devolution it's not mandated who appoints the finance commission uh who appoints the, it's a constitutional body okay right and they are they only have recommendatory power they don't have any right. power to i'm talking about the central finance commission so who appoints it I, i'm trying to figure out their incentives uh, deciding oh, upon what the them, devolution uh, should be think of them as uh, high level bureaucrats and technocrats so okay. it's not an elected body hmm. uh, it's usually filled with experts hmm. and of course every government has you know a few favored people that they believe have the right voice and so on and they put them in uh, and they look for them hmm. having said that the finance commission is actually an excellent body hmm. in that they invite a lot of recommendations from various interests state city local they write a detailed finance commission report so you know you have you can go online and have access from the first to the most recent finance commission reports uh so it's actually an excellent body so we don't have the typical like corrupt politician bureaucrat kind of problem with them the problem is everything that they recommend is typically not heard so every time the finance commission has said we need greater devolution of revenues and resources nobody in the legislature has any incentive to follow that so that is really the problem exactly and just to just to like come to the maharashtra level i often hear people complaining about how oh, so much tax is generated in mumbai for the state most of the yeah. but it goes out into the uh, rural areas because that's where the legislators votes comes from and so that's natural those are the incentives at play and that is what they will do exactly so here i think the problem is more the incentives of the legislature right, right? so this problem some people will believe will get very quickly resolved because the largest number of people are going to live in urban areas so very soon this problem ought to solve itself having said that we are in the midst of the greatest migration most people don't live where they registered to vote while they're moving from rural to urban areas it's not like you and me who've lived in the same place for 10 years and so yeah. on and so forth so it's difficult for them to come to a new place and find i mean most people in mumbai don't even have a pakka address you know the migrants they just come and they have friends and family and some social networks that they stay with for a little while and then figure out their own housing situation so the migrants even though they are increasing in number they are not going to be the ones who register as increasing in number of votes so that is something that we need to keep in mind so that's a force which will eventually even out but while we're in the process of urbanization i don't see more people coming to the cities necessarily translating as more votes so that's one i think the revenue raising ability of cities is only going to grow having said that while the cities do raise a lot of revenue we need to figure out a way by which the cities get to spend that revenue within so right now we have some interesting data so you have three kinds of urban local bodies so you have municipal corporations which are the largest you know uh, something like the bmc or the delhi municipal corporation so on then you have municipalities which are the next level they're smaller and then you have nagar panchayat which is like the really small semi urban sort of areas now this is an interesting detail think about your own sources of revenue and other sources of revenue so your own sources of revenue is what you raised through property and local taxes other sources of revenue is what you get through intergovernmental transfers the debt raising ability of most urban local governments is very small so we'll leave that out of it 
for the moment. So if you're a large municipal corporation like the BMC and the Delhi government, Delhi municipality, you have, which is I think the MCD, uh, you raise almost 65 to 70% of your own revenue. If you are a municipality, which is the next smaller local urban local government, it's about between 25 to 30%. And if you're a Nagar Panchayat, you are raising only about 20% of your own revenue. So now just think about these numbers. If you're raising only 20% of your revenue from your constituents or your taxpayers, and hopefully they're the same or they should be the same, then 80% has to come from somewhere else. That is either a central government bureaucrat or a state government bureaucrat. So 80% of the spend is determined by somebody else and only 20% is determined by the residents who actually voted for you. This creates the big mismatch. So now what I see in the future is a small Nagar Panchayat, which organically should eventually grow into a municipality and eventually into a large municipal corporation, is never going to be able to do so unless the intergovernmental transfer system supports it. And right now, where is the incentive for the powers that be at the center and state to say, I'm going to give a disproportionately large amount of money to a very small city, hoping that it will become a very big city. That incentive absolutely doesn't exist. So what happens? More money goes to established cities. There is no money spent on creating new urban capacity. And there is no money or no effort spent on increasing local revenue, right? The other part of this is urban local bodies actually don't end up spending all the money that they raise. And when you actually, there are, I haven't done so myself, but there are other people who've written papers and surveyed, you know, all these local corporators and so on. And they ask them, you have all this money, why haven't you spent it? And they say, we don't have any idea on whether this source of revenue is reliable. We got some one-time money from the state government. We got some one-time money from the federal government. And we don't know if it will come again in the future. So we can't start a big infrastructure or a governance project. So we just let the money sit, right? Which is a very sensible thing to do. Because if you start doing something and you can't finish it, it's highly visible and the voters will vote you out. If you just don't do anything and the state of affairs is as they were yesterday and no promises were made and no promises were broken, you're less likely to get booted out. And right? people Things, continue with the and people continue and Exactly. So this is sort of the way the current system works at the moment. So for a moment, contrast the state of Bombay and Delhi, which have the same structural deficiency that you just described, with the city where you now live, New York. How is it different? I don't have the exact data for New York city off sure. the top of my but head structurally so first first things first the united states is far more federal and far more fiscally federal than the indian republic ever was or ever intended to be right. so there is a really big difference in the constitutional setup of these two countries so the states were always supposed to be responsible for all state and local issues and the federal government was only supposed to be responsible for defense and foreign affairs and so on. That's how the original United States Constitution was set up. Now, every state, like the Indian system, is supposed to devolve power to urban local bodies. The difference is that that happened in America and it didn't happen in India. The second thing is, urban local bodies came as an afterthought in India. In America, it was the reverse. Immigrants went and settled 
in small clusters those clusters formed small local governments and then, and then those local governments became aligned or got absorbed into some kind of a system within that state government so the process was bottom up almost in the united states at least in the initial period as opposed to india where it was completely top down where we disconnected what happened during the colonial times and said we will reboot in 1950 with this new system and the new system had no mention of urban local governments or rural local governments in fact even now the kind of reforms that you're saying you'd like to see are again fundamentally reforms that will come top down itself yes and that's sort of what worries me how uh, how realistic is it then to expect that given the incentives of the so people on top so there are two ways to think about this now one way is we actually mandate that the revenue that is raised locally stays local we change the rules you mean yes basically. we change the rules of the game we say that there are certain taxes which are reserved for local bodies those taxes can only be imposed locally and the money will stay with the urban local government or the rural local government right. and that's one way to do it now if you think about it who votes on constitutional amendments parliamentarians right. right these kind of constitutional amendments need to be ratified by half the number of states so the right. other people who will vote on this is the state Uh, legislators both have no incentives of cutting off the branch of cutting of off state. yes exactly so it's almost like killing Impossible. the goose that gives the golden egg right so, so the only hope really is that cities grow more and more populated and then the demand side takes care so of so that is the other way of thinking about so right now i don't think there is any incentive among legislators to actually devolve more now there are few things that can happen Now even though institutions and rules of the game are really important individuals are also really important I think it's a great move in India that the chief minister of a state after a very long time became the prime minister of a country right I think he had a vast experience as chief minister to really understand how we need to be a more federal nation Now whether Modi has made India more federal or not is debatable but a lot of his rhetoric talked about competitive federalism and you know devolving greater power to the states so on so forth yes. and it must be said that during modi's time the finance commission's recommendations have actually been taken and greater proportion of the central finances have been devolved to the states more so than ever before in any government so there is some move made by some individuals who strongly believe in federalism and i don't think we should underestimate that push because once a push goes in that direction then you know it may continue to gain momentum and go in that direction whether or not this government lives to see the day so i mean the default state of all systems in a sense is inertia so any push can go a long way exactly. if it gathers momentum exactly and i think this this push will continue further so right now i think uh, modi government devolved an additional 12 to 16% i don't remember the numbers off the top of my head to the states than the governments before and maybe that trend will continue and that would be great so i would not underestimate a really strong and charismatic chief minister of any state attempting to devolve greater funds to the local governments right to urban local and rural local governments especially urban local governments because that's where a vast majority of the population is going to be but i don't see why any of this shouldn't apply to rural local governments their problems are different they might need irrigation systems and they might need better uh, healthcare for I mean they know best what so their on. problems are so exactly. they should be the ones to decide exactly so this applies for both urban and rural areas so one is i would not underestimate the the importance of individuals in key positions who make such a move so that would be number one the other is i think eventually 
when the urbanization process sort of starts to plateau and a large population already lives in urban areas, you have to eventually see that push come bottom up, right? The third way of thinking about this is we've already privatized a lot of public good services, right? A lot of, if you go uh, to certain neighborhoods in Delhi, they get private water tankers, rich and poor neighborhoods. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of neighborhoods where garbage collection is now completely private because this, the municipal governments just stop bothering to collect And the citizens garbage. took their own... Uh, exactly. Once you dump garbage in the municipal dump, uh, it's actually rack pickers who separate the garbage also privately, mm. right? They do it so that they can collect the plastic and the recyclables and make money off of it. So I would also not underestimate the importance of private enterprise, to help solve a lot of quasi uh, public good issues. Now, the trouble with this is you end up paying taxes and then you again end up paying the maintenance fee for a condo or for garbage collection or whatever it is. And so far, Indians are doing it because these services are so incredibly important that even the poorest of people end up paying money for, you know, better sewage systems or garbage collection systems, even in slums. They don't have a choice. I mean, I, they don't have a choice. I mean, just to just to put it harshly, the government is basically a parasite, if not a service provider. So they have to get the service provided from elsewhere. Exactly. And you see this in a lot of slums in Bombay and in other, uh, other big cities or other emerging cities, that there is a completely different political economy of slum governance. And a lot of it is government and public but a lot of it is also privately funded and there is a local dada or you know a slum leader who collects the money right and actually ends up delivering the service so this is already happening the problem is when you pay twice as much tax you lose a lot in productivity right so that's a problem the other is you have a lot of disgruntled citizens who feel like the state is oppressing them and they are not getting their bang for the buck. Correctly so. Yeah, absolutely. So let me try to sum up everything we've discussed so far. The reason our cities are in such a bad state is because we need genuine fiscal federalism. Even though we do have local governments in a nominal sense, uh, those elected representatives can't really be held accountable because they don't have the power. The money comes from elsewhere. And to fix fiscal federalism, you basically see three rays of hope. One is enlightened individuals at the top who push these reforms through and make sure more and more money is devolved to the states. Second is, as more and more people move to cities, a bottom-up, demand-side-led movement for change. And the third is, private individuals just doing jugar and managing for themselves and essentially organizing themselves to do what the government has failed to provide them. Absolutely. So you can either reform government or you can make it irrelevant So we don't know where the push will be, whether we will end up reforming government or making it irrelevant. But it has to be one of those two choices. Otherwise, you will just see vast heaps of garbage everywhere. Shruti, on that delightful note, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the show, do follow Shruti on Twitter at S Rajgopalan. You can also follow me at Amit Verma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. You can stay in touch with my published writing at India Uncut on IndiaUncut.com. And check out the online magazine I edit, Pragati, at thinkpragati.com. If you want to listen to the archival episodes of The Seen and the Unseen, and what better use could there be of your time, go over to seenunseen.in. If you enjoyed listening to The Seen and the Unseen, 
check out another hit show from Indusworks Media Networks, Cyrus Says, which is hosted by my old colleague from MTV, Cyrus Brocha. You can download it on any podcasting network. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. Sorry to say, but there's been a slight delay due to the apocalypse having suddenly begun. As you can see, there's death, destruction and chaos taking place all around us. But don't you worry, food and drinks will be served shortly and I would recommend checking out IVM Podcasts to get some of your favorite Indian podcasts. We'll keep you going till this whole thing blows over. Thank you.